I think we'll finish talking about worship in the early church today uh, before we move on to the Middle Ages next week. Um, Last week, I talked about some of the innovations that took place in the early church. Specifically, we talked about things like uh, the increasing ceremonialism, the increasing uh, the rituals, the introduction of complex rituals. Uh, We talked about uh, how baptism was never just baptism. It is involved in a part of a long process in the early church. And so, um, at least as time goes on. And I try, and I hope that you were able to at least get a sense of how some of these things start to be, they begin, and then they develop until they become part of the norm and part of everybody's expectations. Um, We talked about the church calendar. We talked about uh, the development of the dating of Christmas and Easter, for example. And so today I wanted to start off with one thing in the early church. I mean, I think we've already talked about some good healthy things. Uh, specifically the liturgy, specifically the emphasis on preaching, which we'll talk more about today. But I wanted to at least talk about one thing that is very positive, and that is a healthy development of understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. And if you were to go to the Roman Catholic Church today and you were to ask, and you were to ask what the church has always believed about the Mass, what they call the Mass... They would tell you that the church has always believed, ever since the time of Paul and Jesus, that in the Lord's Supper, the body or the bread becomes the actual body of Jesus. And they will tell you that the, the blood that the wine always has been believed to be the blood of Jesus. And I just wanted to, to share with you uh, a little bit of uh, help with understanding that and thinking about that. Because the early church fathers spoke of the Lord's Supper as being a means of grace. But they did not believe that the bread and wine ceased to be bread and wine and instead become the physical body and blood of Jesus. Um, The early church wouldn't have even had, they wouldn't have even thought to use Aristotle's categories that the medievals ended up employing. So if you read Thomas Aquinas, for example, Thomas Aquinas is one one of those that we credit with, or blame, I'll use the word blame, that we blame for the Roman Catholic view that we call transubstantiation. Um, but they didn't have Aristotle in the Western world until the 1200s in Latin that they could actually read. Before that, it was stuck in classical Greek, and most of, them, most of the scholars couldn't read it. And so about the 1200s, you start to see this, this understanding of the body and the blood of Jesus becoming... Uh, the bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Jesus. But I want to give you a few examples from the early church to show you that this is not the case early on. Uh, Do you remember me mentioning Hippolytus? I mentioned the order of Hippolytus, how he's got the first, he gave us the first complete liturgy that we have from the early church, uh, including um, including his liturgy about how to pray for somebody who's ordained, how to pray over the Lord's Supper, those sorts of things. Hippolytus says that what happens when the bread and the cup are blessed is that they become an image of the body and blood of Christ. So again, Hippolytus very early. We're talking 150, 170, something like that. And he's saying they become an image of the body and blood of Jesus. But they don't become the body and blood of Jesus. Um, You have Clement of Alexandria. Listen to what he says. The flesh figuratively represents to us the Holy Spirit, for the flesh was created by him. The blood points us to the word, 
For as, as rich word, as rich blood, the word has been infused into life. The union of both is the Lord, the food of babes. So here he uses this word figuratively to describe the presence of Jesus in the supper. Um, and then we have Ignatius who says that the bread of communion is the medicine of immortality and the antidote to keep us from dying. It causes us to live forever in Jesus Christ. So the reason I'm quoting Ignatius is I want you to see that they weren't just memorialists about the supper, right? There's something more happening in the supper, says Ignatius, than just, um, just a memorial. That's just reminding or just remembering what Jesus did for us. Instead, he's, he's got a very spiritual understanding of what happens in the Lord's Supper. And it's important that we see both of those early on. Um, because I want you to understand that when the reformers... When the reformers are going to work, and we're going to get to the reformers later, but when the reformers begin their work, their goal is not to strip away everything the church has ever believed. Their goal is to chisel away the distractions and the things that the church was practicing that got them far from the simplicity of what the early church was doing and what the Bible teaches. And so I want you to see that the reformers, in my opinion, go back to the early church here. When they start to say, look, you've got to stop saying this is actually the body of Jesus. You've got to stop saying this is the blood of Jesus. Physical body doesn't help you at all if it doesn't touch your soul, if it doesn't spiritually feed you, if it doesn't spiritually nourish you. And so anyway, there's probably more that we could say about transubstantiation, but we're going to talk more about it as we get to the Middle Ages. So because that's going to be a sad reality of the Middle Ages. Um, What I do want to talk about... And this is just what we can fill the rest of our time here with, is preaching in the early church. Um, I mentioned before that in the synagogues there was preaching. I mentioned before that when the, 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 the rabbi would get up and he would teach in the synagogue, he would have a pulpit that he would stand at. We saw this in Nehemiah. Um, we've seen this already in the history of the church. And so it's not unusual for the same thing to happen uh, in a Christian gathering as well. And you remember I said that the service was divided in half. Does anyone remember what the first half of the service was called? It's okay if you don't know. The first half of the service was the ministry of the word. And then the second half was the Eucharist. And who was able to be there for the first half? Do you guys remember? Anybody who wanted to could be there for the first half of the service. And then they send you out. For the second half, if you have not professed faith and, and been baptized, if you're not a part of, of the church. And so the preaching, though, was intended to be heard by anybody who was there. And so preaching was sometimes, the preaching would be evangelistic. We're going to see that in a moment. I'm going to give you an example of an early sermon. But it's evangelistic, and it's meant to build up the current believers who are there. So it's not preaching that's, that's geared towards one or the other, but it's actually both. And the illustration I want to give to you is actually a sermon from 125 A.D. 125 A.D. is very early for us to have a complete sermon. So I'm actually really impressed. Um, We have a complete sermon. It's sometimes called the second epistle of Clement. Now, this is is probably the earliest surviving sermon we have outside of the New Testament. It was preached by an elder from the church in Corinth. He probably was not Clement. Clement. Um, in fact, I'm not entirely sure how it got the name, the second epistle of Clement, um, but it is not believed that Clement actually preached this sermon. 
but it is from an elder in a church in Corinth. So the church in Corinth, glad to know they survived the time that Paul is, <laughs> you know, you've read First and Second Corinthians. You think, what's happening to this church? They're still around in 125. And the sermon, I'm actually going to read a chunk of it to you. Um, it's based on the text of Isaiah 54. So we don't know the name of the elder who preaches it. He's just a, he's a nameless elder who just loves God's people and he wants them to hear God's word. And I'm going to read you the text of Psalm 54. It says this. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Bring forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have been in travail. For the children of the desolate one will be no more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. So um, I'm going to read to you. Um, remember I mentioned to you that I'm like, I use a Kindle. I use a Kindle a lot. I have like a 1500 book library on the Kindle. So I got a giant Kindle. Just a gigantic Kindle that I can write on now. So I'm reading off of this. I spent $2.99 and I got just a bunch of church fathers on my Kindle. And I can read it as big as I want. I can make it gigantic and just read it. So I'm going to read you a little bit of the introduction to this Sermon that was written in 125. Um, listen to this. This is him based on Isaiah 54. Brethren, it is fitting that you should think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of the living and the dead. And it does not become us to think lightly of our salvation. For if we think little of him, we shall also hope but to obtain little from him. And those of us who hear carelessly of these things, as if they were of small importance, commit sins. Not knowing whence we have been called and by whom and to what place and how much Jesus Christ submitted to suffer for our sakes. Um, so he's, he leads off his, his sermon by saying it's really important that we praise Jesus as God and we remember how precious it is to be saved by Jesus. What a good way to start a sermon off. I think that's a good beginning for a sermon. He's saying we should give everything we have to thinking well about Jesus. Um, and then he, he proposes this question, what sort of praise should we offer to this kind of a savior, a savior who's so great? What should we offer to him? And he answers by going to the text. He goes to Isaiah 45. Um, and what does it say again? It says, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Cry aloud. He's using these words of expression to say, hey, if you've been saved by Jesus, then you should give a really big response. You should think well of him. You should employ everything you have to love him. Um, and I want you to notice also that what he does here should be familiar to us here at, at Evergreen, right? He gives a word of introduction. He wants to get you ready for the substance of the message. He's trying to hook you, right? This is, this is he wants you invested and he says, well, what can we do? Well, I'm gonna hook you by getting you to, to remember how important it is to think well about Jesus. Um, and then he talks about the people Isaiah 54 is written to. He wants them to understand the context in which, in which it's written. And, and then he takes them to another text in Matthew's gospel. He says, look, Matthew 9, 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is the key to understanding Isaiah 54. So he, he basically goes on to say, God wants your heart he doesn't just want you to go through the motions. And so he's pushing the, the Corinthians to, to have a, a feeling for God, right? Uh, to have an affection for God. 
to have a desire to love and worship God, not just to go through the formality of it all. He's saying God is worth more than that, right? If he's such a great savior, he deserves your heart, not just your, your emotions. Um, Hughes Old, when he's talking about this sermon, says, um, what's particularly striking about the sermon is the way the sayings of Jesus are used again and again to interpret the scriptures. It's Jesus who teaches us what scripture means. And what he does in the text is he'll, he'll quote from Isaiah and then he'll say, look how Jesus says this. So he sees Jesus as the perfect interpreter of the Old Testament. So he's, he does this back and forth a lot where he'll quote from Isaiah and then he'll say, see what Jesus says? And then sometimes he'll actually do it with Paul. Um, at one point he says, that's how Jesus handles this text. Look what Paul does in Galatians. And then he goes to Galatians and he says, look, uh, Paul is, is showing us too how we're supposed to read this. And it's just like the, the string of pearls approach. Do you remember me mentioning to you in the synagogue how they use that approach called the string of pearls? How we'll take this one text and we'll show you how another text talks about it. And then we'll pull it out and talk, see how another one uh, talks to us. And we'll just keep seeing how all of this builds till we have a healthy Christ-centered understanding of what this passage means. Um, so not only does Jesus rightly interpret the scripture, but he sees Paul as rightly interpreting the scripture. And that's important because it's not long after the writing of the New Testament canon, right? It's 125, which means that's only 40 years after the apostle John has died. That is, this is very close to the time of the apostles. And already, what are they doing? They're quoting from Paul and they're seeing Paul as a, alongside of Jesus as a source for sermon material, essentially. Um, then the, then the author of this sermon makes three applications. So here are his three applications for his sermon. The first one is this. He reminds these early Christians that even listening to God's word is a way to worship. He says, listening well to a sermon is one of the ways that you give glory to God. And that's also a message for the preacher, right? He's talking about himself while he's up there. And he's also saying, look, preaching plays a major role in worship. And listening to God is of the essence of the thanksgiving that we owe to him. So when he starts off the sermon and he says, how can we worship such a God? One of his answers is that we need to listen well to preaching. We need to listen carefully. We need to employ all of our minds and our hearts. We should really care what's being said and we should listen closely. Um, that's one application. Let's listen well to the preaching. Um, his second application is he reminds them of the importance of prayer. And he says, look, prayer is really important. One of the ways that you love such a God, that you love such a Savior, is by praying. Um, he, he says, don't just listen to the sermon, but go home and put the sermon into practice. And one of the ways you put the sermon into practice is by praying, is what he tells them in this sermon. Um, and then third, one more application. He reminds them that they should meet together more frequently. He says, you should meet together more frequently. He says, God gives us the Lord's day to meet together, but you should meet together even more often if you can. He says, you should spend more time with other believers because you love God and because you wanna see God bless that person and you wanna be blessed. And he says that we know from the scripture that God blesses us by our presence together. So that's one of his applications as well. Now, is it a genius sermon that is, that, uh, that, uh, you could just see converting the whole pagan world. No, it's a very ordinary sermon. That's actually why it's such a blessing that it's still preserved. 
um, because it's not some sermon that was remembered for its brilliance. Um, instead, it's a very basic, straightforward reading of the text. And then he's just, he's just telling everybody what it says. Um, there's not, there aren't really bells and whistles. There aren't even like illustrations throughout the sermon. Not really. He gives application, but that's it. Um, Here's what Hughes Old says about this sermon, though. He, he does see something very special about it. He says, the personal witness of the preacher comes through loud and clear. Um, he too struggles against the temptations of the devil. And yet he seems confident that by the grace of God, he will come through it all and rejoice in eternal blessedness. Um, so, so, you know, this is it's a precious sermon, the fact that we have this. Um, I, to be honest, until I was reading Hughes Old, I didn't realize what this sermon was. It's, in, it's packed in with a bunch of other apocryphal writings, and I wouldn't have known about it if Hughes Old hadn't drawn my attention to it. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, what you see, though, is that the preaching reflects the worship order, right? So the first part of the service is, is meant to be believers and unbelievers. And the, the, the plan, then, is for an unbeliever to hear a message like that and to see what it means to follow Jesus, and then to do that, to follow Jesus, and start coming more often, and start hearing from God's word, and eventually profess faith, so that what? They can stay for the second half of the service, and so that they can be part of all of what God's people are doing. Um, we need to see that, that the, at one point he mentions that Jesus came for the righteous and the unrighteous, right? That's one of the ways we know that he's He's, right, he's, he's, he's being evangelistic in the sermon. He assumes some people will be in there that haven't professed faith um, and they need to hear it. Um, the second century church did its evangelistic preaching in the midst of the service, right? So they didn't have a special evangelistic service. Instead, the whole service is meant to be faithful to what God says and it's supposed to be evangelistic. So you don't have to separate them or think of them as separate things. Um, instead, you're supposed to be preaching in such a way that an ordinary person can understand it. Uh, and you're supposed to preach in such a way that people who are, who are not um, searchers or not seekers, they're, they're believers, that they get built up too. And they're showing you that you can do both. Um, so this is just sort of a taste of the preaching that happened after the time of John. I don't know. Do you guys find this interesting? Like... I I was gripped by it, even though, like, as I read it, I, I doesn't stand out. I mean, I've, you read a lot of sermons, and some of them are easier to read. Some of them are harder to read. This one's right in the middle. But it's sweet that it's so old. It's sweet that it's just that um, it's, that it's so simple. It's our heritage. Yeah, it's our, this is our church family. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm going to keep talking about over and over again. I try not to use the word Catholic to refer to the Roman Catholic Church. I, I, am, I try to be explicit when I use the word Roman Catholic right. um, because this is the Catholic Church, small c Catholic Church. This is the universal church that we come from. But when we think of the Roman Catholic Church, you need to think of after the Council of Trent. You need to think of when the Roman Catholic Church actually makes official its anathema of the gospel and before that, as flawed as it is, I want you to see it as your church. I want you to see this as your church. I want you to see um, the Middle Ages as disappointing as it starts to get. I want you to see that as your church. Um, even though some of the teaching becomes really funky in the New Testament or in the Middle Ages, I still want you to see that as your church. Um, I want you to identify with it. And I want you to just, when you see the warts, go, my church had warts. Um, 
Uh, but, but once the actual organization called the Roman Catholic Church pronounces a curse upon the gospel, they cease to be a church and they, and they, um, and they no longer get to claim the streams of the gospel that came before. And that's where the reformers become so important because the reformers are keeping that flame lit. Um, in his book, Hughes Old gives us some more examples of preaching that takes place. Um, Melito of Sardis and Clement of Alexandria, both of them are, are preaching in the second century. Um, I could give pay attention to those if we wanted to. But I want to draw your attention to one reality, which is what happens in the Edict of Milan? Does anyone remember? I talked about it last week a little bit. Constantine, the Edict of Milan, what happens? Make Christianity illegal. Yes, Christianity becomes legally tolerated. And then in 380, it actually becomes the official religion of the Roman, uh, Roman Empire. The preaching changes. The preaching changes once it becomes the official religion. Because now, think of, think of how your cultural position changes. Um, you go from being a minority in the culture who have a, a small voice, you're trying to be faithful, and then suddenly what happens? You become the official religion of the empire. Do you think that, you think the preaching is just going to stay the same? The priorities of the preachers are going to be the same? Um, you're going to have pagans, and this is going to be a theme that we keep hearing, pagans coming into the church and needing to be schooled in the church. And, and so the, the shape of the church becomes much more trying to absorb all of these people who don't think like Jews and Christians now. Instead, they think like, they think like pagans. And so Hughes Old mentions, I'm going to give you a quote because it's interesting. Uh, he says, with the coming of the Christian empire, Christian preaching was bound to change. During the years of persecution, the preacher had to gather and nourish the congregation to protect it from the world. By the way, I see that as what I'm doing right now. I see that as our cultural position. I do not see Christianity in a dominant cultural position. And so I see, I see what we do here on Sunday mornings, for example, and throughout the week as doing that. Um, as preaching to protect you from the world and to fortify you so that you can go out, right? Because we're not culturally dominant. We're, we're culturally minimal. Um, and so that's, how, that's what I see. Now here it changes though, because he says now, now that it becomes the official religion, the Christian preacher had to become a bishop responsible for the spiritual welfare of the empire. The disciples had indeed gone out to make disciples of all nations and at least for a major part of the world, they knew, knew that they had succeeded. And now they were responsible for a Christian society. It was the Christian preacher who must now give that world vision and purpose. So that's a different kind of preaching than you would do in a place where you're not culturally dominant. Right? That's a different kind of preaching. So um, I will just mention um, one group of preachers in this time period after the Christian empire comes into exist existence, and that's the Cappadocian fathers. The Cappadocian fathers are three men, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. They lived in the Cappadocian region of modern-day Turkey, basically this area that Paul had ministered in. And they grew up in the churches that Paul had planted, and they all are ministers now. They're, two of them are brothers. Um, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa are brothers, and then uh, Gregory of Nazianzus is their lifelong friend. So they're all just very tight, these three guys. 
and they had the best education the world of antiquity could give. Um, they knew the Greek poets. They knew the Greek philosophers. They knew the rules of rhetoric. They studied classical rhetoric. Um, and they were the sort of preachers that actually you probably would have loved to be able to just keep having throughout church history. The problem is the kind of world that can create that kind of a preacher, um, it existed just for a blink. It exists just for a blink because what ends up happening, we'll see in the Middle Ages, is these guys don't – people who become ministers oftentimes are very uneducated. They don't um, know the languages. They don't know rhetoric. They haven't studied classical uh, – they haven't studied the, the classical uh, speaking methods. And instead, they're very ignorant. And what you'll start seeing in the churches is instead of an emphasis on preaching – you'll see specialists who are preaching and everybody else is reading from a lectionary and reading prepared written things because they know over time that people aren't going to be capable of actually preaching. And the, the three Cappadocian fathers, the reason they're important is they stand out for a few reasons. Um, one of the reasons is because um, they live in a time when oratory is like a sport. Like we would never think of speeches as a sport. We would never think of it as a form of entertainment. Like, I just don't, other than going to see comedians, I just don't, can't think of a time where people for fun go listen to people talk. It's just generally not what people do. Um, but they lived in a time when, when this was very much uh, in vogue, and that means what? That means that they're very polished as speakers. They're very polished as preachers. Um, they, use, they probably didn't use the word um very often, you know, for example. <laughs> Which I'm obsessed with the word um. I love the word um. I don't know what I would do with um without it. Um, one of the big things that stand out about the Cappadocian fathers, very important to them that we get the literal reading of the scriptures right. They, to them, they want you to understand from a grammatical, historical perspective what that text meant to the people who are writing it. And then he wants to, they want to apply it to the people who are listening. Which becomes much more valuable because you can go back and read their sermons a thousand years later and they're still deeply meaningful because they're helping you understand the text. Meanwhile, you go to somebody like Origen in the early church and he's got an allegorical reading of the passage that's so wild that you, you, it doesn't help you understand the text. It doesn't help you understand it at all. Um, they also had a sense of the value of the wisdom of God. They identified Jesus with the wisdom of God. And so to them, when you bring the wisdom of God into worship and read it and preach it, who, who actually is coming into the service? Jesus himself, the wisdom of God. When the wisdom of God is read, when, when God's word is spoken and God's word is preached, you're inviting Jesus into the service to minister to everybody who's there. And so they saw worship, they saw preaching as a means of worship. They actually saw it as a way of glorifying God. And so at one point, uh, I'm trying to remember which one was, um, I think it was Gregory of Nyssa who spoke of preaching as a sacrifice, as a spiritual sacrifice. So as he's, as he's preaching, what is he doing? He's thinking of this is a way of worshiping you, God. I'm going to say true things about you, and your people are going to hear true things about you. So I'm going to worship you by preaching, and they're going to worship you by hearing. Uh, and then my heart is going to respond, right? Because, we, because God tells us how much he hates formalism and how much he loves it when we actually love him from the heart. And so this is one of the things that caused the Cappadocian fathers to stand out a great deal. Um, 
John Chrysostom. I want to talk about John Chrysostom, but um, I went to go buy a biography about John Chrysostom off of Amazon. It was like $50. Um, I couldn't find a normally priced biography of John Chrysostom. So instead, I'm going to wait. Uh, I don't have time to read that anyway. Um, I'd rather read his commentary and his sermons than actually read a biography of him anyway. But I love John Chrysostom. And I was telling my friends the other day that, that I want to meet John Chrysostom in heaven. I just, I really, I can't wait to meet John Chrysostom one day. Um, part of what makes Chrysostom special is that like the Cappadocian fathers, he wants you to understand what the text really means. He's not interested in what it could mean or some wild idea of what could possibly be said. Instead, he wants you to get what the word says and he wants you to appreciate it and understand it. Chrysostom actually got kicked out of his pulpit and was exiled because he preached against the rich. And here's the thing, he was preaching and in the, in the place where Chrysostom preached, there was a place, I can't remember the name of it, but it was, it was the emperor's chair. And the emperor actually would come into the service and would actually sit in this extremely prominent place where it almost looked like he was like overseeing the preaching and watching you. And when the emperor would come in, he would come in in great pomp with a whole processional. This is one of the reasons why churches started having processionals. Because in the grand cathedrals, in the big churches, what was happening? There was a processional. Because the emperor comes in, he comes in with all of his attendants, and then what does he do? He comes and he sits down, and then all of those who come with the emperor sit down, and oftentimes the minister, too, would come through with the minister. So what do you start having? Or, sorry, with the emperor. What do you start having? An expectation that there's going to be pomp and glamour, the kind that's attached to royalty, in the service. And so when the small churches in the countrysides would meet, a lot of times they would take their cues from the big churches. So they would go, well, you know, over there in Constantinople or over there in, uh, in Rome or wherever, when they walk in, it is a big deal. They have a big processional. So then after a while, even the small churches start having these processionals. So John Chrysostom, he comes in with the emperor. He goes up to the pulpit. He begins to preach. And what does he do? He preaches against those who decorate themselves in fancy jewelry and in gold and bejewel themselves and dress ridiculously. And meanwhile, you have a king and queen sitting there. He's talking about you. And you're like 30 feet away. (laughs) And so what happens? Chrysostom eventually gets kicked out and gets exiled out of the out of the empire but he is so beloved for his preaching because he spoke and he was was not afraid of man he he preached in a way that was needed to be heard and you know what some of the stuff he said didn't exactly stick because guess what emperors are very powerful and they're very and they're very uh strong um Here's what Old says. He says, few Christian preachers have been more prophetic than John Chrysostom was at the imperial court of Constantinople when again and again he called the leaders of society to turn away from their vain worship of luxury and power. You know, what a huge change from the sermon we looked at previously where these believers are all gathering in humility in these hidden places to hear the word, to invite their friends to come and believe And then within 250 years, they're preaching to the very movers and shakers of the Roman Empire. It's really interesting contrast, I think. And 
Um, right now, I think if you're looking for brothers and sisters in the Lord in church history, you look to the second century right now, not the third and the, not the, certainly not the fourth century. Because our brothers and sisters are the ones that are hiding out and they're fortifying their faith and they're living in simplicity and humility. And I think that's the moment that we live in now. Not, not a moment of conquest, not a moment of triumph, but a, but a moment where we care for one another and where we, we minister faithfully and we do our very best to let God's word speak. That's, that's where we are. So there's more that I could say. I could tear through a bunch of, of old names. Um, I need like two more minutes <laughs> because I want us to be on good footing for the Middle Ages next week. Here's what happens. The fourth century sees this flowering of oratory. Um, it, is, it is a true renaissance uh, um, that, that is never quite met again as far as Christian preaching goes. Um, really, it's a short age. Really, it's less than 100 years beginning from the end of the fourth century uh, to the middle of the fifth. Um, when you think of the fall of Rome, don't think of a day or a date or a moment where um, the Goths come in and they sack Rome. The fact that the Goths could come in and sack Rome in 410 is just a sign of the weakness of Rome that was already there. So the Roman emperors, what are they doing? They put all, their, they put all of their armies at the borders of the empire. And the Goths start to realize, the barbarians, they just start to realize that they can just come in. If you can get past those, the, the, the frontiers, you can just come right in. They don't have armies. They don't have garrisons of soldiers inside of Rome. And so you can just come in and take what you please. And the emperors basically decide there's a certain amount of theft we're willing to tolerate. Uh, but if it gets really bad, then we chase them down and we fight them. But that happens over the course of hundreds of years. And eventually you start to realize that nobody's in control here anymore. And that's what begins to happen with the Roman Empire. And so when we... Um, um, Christians themselves, because they're in power, have to start reckoning with what the collapse of Rome that seems so evident, they have to start thinking about it for themselves. And that's why Augustine writes The City of God, because he wants Christians to think well about the cultural collapse that's taking place around them. And one of the points that Augustine makes is, you know, everybody seems to think, or many people seem to think, that the Christians are the reason why this happened, that they abandoned the Roman gods. And Augustine's response is actually, do you know what? He says, you were worshiping demons for hundreds of years. You were worshiping false gods. They were demons. And the demons were happy to provide you with benefits and to give you worldly things. But they always turn on you. And Augustine's claim then is that actually the fall of Rome happened because they worshiped demons for hundreds of years. Because they sacrificed their children. And he pointed out, actually, when the Goths come in, guess what they don't do? They don't burn the churches. They leave the churches standing because they themselves need a transcendent message as well. They leave the churches untouched. And that's the thing that actually becomes the stable force in the Middle Ages is actually the church. Mm -hmm. The church ends up becoming the place that you can go to and you know that it won't fail you and you know, they, you know that it won't turn on you. That doesn't mean that it's not flawed. It doesn't mean they're not sin sinners in the church. But it does mean that it's more stable than the government. So the church ends up becoming this enduring thing that as we're going into the Middle Ages, just think of it as the persistent reality that preserves a lot of the things that were lost before. So as the what we so-called dark ages come upon Christendom, um, just know that God is at work preserving his people. He's at work preserving his word. Uh, he is at work 
And we're going to see that continuing in the Middle Ages. Even though there's going to be a lot of, of problems that creep in, there's going to be an awful lot of beauty and goodness, and his word's going to continue to speak as we're going to see. So I hope we can talk more about this. I had a lot more planned to talk about, but I also didn't want to drag it on more, and I didn't want to drag and move it into next week. So when we meet next week, we will talk about the Middle Ages and worship in the Middle Ages. And I think you're going to be very interested because if you're like me, we're coming into the part that I knew the least about. We're coming into the part where it was all brand new territory for me. So um, let's pray. And I'm actually going to pray for the food. Um, is there any special instructions before I pray, Aaron? No, just eat. All right. <laughs> just eat. Well, I don't know. We'll see if we know how to do that. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... We thank you for this unknown minister in Corinth who opened your word and pressed people to love the Lord Jesus and dedicate their life to him. And we pray that you would continue that in your church, that you would continue to press us to do the same, that you would remind us of the simplicity of what you call for. Um, we pray that we would glorify Jesus and that we would worship him uh, in, our, in the preaching of the word, uh, in our worship, that we would see all of the parts of the service as means of worshiping you. Uh, I pray, Lord, for this food, thanking you for all of your people who brought something, but also for those who are here to share it together. Uh, I pray that we would be a blessing to each other, and I pray that we would edify each other. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.